Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode is titled Kant. At the conclusion of Episode 115, which was Part 2 of The Rationalist Option, I said that we would return later to the subject of the philosophy of the Enlightenment to consider its impact on theology and church history. And we're going to do that now. We saw that John Locke placed a wedge between faith and reason when his system of empiricism claimed that the only genuine knowledge was that of experience, but repeated experiences generated a kind of knowledge that he called probability. Because we experience the same thing again and again, we have reason to assume the likelihood of it continuing to happen. And we use the example of a friend that we called George. We see and hear George at least weekly. So, Even when George isn't in our immediate presence, we have good reason to conclude that he probably exists. Using the rule of probability, Locke regarded the Christian faith as reasonable. His repeated experience of the world logically required a sufficient cause for it. He found the Bible's explanation of creation and the subsequent course of history to align with his experience of it. But, Locke maintained, Christianity provided no knowledge that a reasoned examination of experience would discover on its own. Then along came the empiricist David Hume, who wielded doubt like a cudgel. If Locke placed a wedge between faith and reason, Hume is the one who wielded the sledge that broke them apart. His skepticism went so far as to claim the common-sense notion of cause and effect was an illusion. He had nothing but disdain for Locke's idea of probability. Hume said that all we can know for certain is what we are experiencing at that moment, but we can't know with certainty that one thing gives rise to another no matter how many times it may be repeated. It may, in fact, at some time and place not repeat that pattern. So, to draw universal laws from what we experience is forbidden. Hume didn't just regard faith as irrational. His critique cast doubt on reason itself. Empiricists and rationalists were set at odds with each other. Hume and his empiricist buddies weren't without their opponents. A Scot named James Reed published An Inquiry into the Human Mind on the Principles of Common Sense in 1764. Reed argued for the value of self-evident knowledge, or what he called common sense. His position came to be known as common sense philosophy. It had many adherents among the growing number of deists. In France, Baron de Montesquieu, applied the principles of reason to theories of government, and he came to the conclusion that a republic was the preferred form of government. Since power corrupts, Montesquieu said that government ought to be exercised by three equal branches that would balance each other, a legislative, executive, and judicial. He proposed these ideas 30 years before either Americans or French adopted them for their political systems. Shortly after Montesquieu, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, suggested what the rationalists called progress wasn't. Enlightenment thinkers generally regarded human history as a record of advance from lesser to greater sophistication, progress. Societies were moving on from backward barbarianism to advanced civilization. The Enlightenment's emphasis on reason was evidence that humanity was emerging from the pre-scientific belief in religious superstition into a new era of rationalism. But Rousseau argued that much of what people considered progress was in reality a departure from their natural state that was contrary to human flourishing. He called the modern world of his day artificial. 
Rousseau advocated a return to the original order, whatever that was. He lauded the noble savage who lived in a pure state, unfettered by the conventions and inventions of modernity. Whatever government there was ought to serve rather than rule. Religion ought to be a thing of the lowest common denominator, with no one telling anyone else what to believe or how to worship. Rousseau defined the lowest common religious denominator as belief in God, the immortality of the soul, and moral norms. Which sounds a lot like Rousseau contradicted the very thing that he said no one could do, tell others what to believe. It's a classic case of believe whatever you want as long as you agree with me, which is an oft-repeated position of skeptics. At the close of the 18th century, along came a German philosopher who blew everything up. (laughs) Many consider Immanuel Kant the central figure of modern philosophy. And before we dive in, I need to pause and say that I barely grasp Kant's ideas. Seriously. Right about the time that I think that I'm getting a handle on his philosophy, he says something that makes it all slip away. I hope that when I teach, I make things clearer, not more obscure. Kant tries to clarify, but his thoughts move in a realm far beyond my minuscule capacity. I just can't get Kant. The best that I can do is seek to explain Kant's ideas as others have expressed them. Kant was born in 1724 in the city of Konigsberg, in Prussia, to pietist parents. He was a capable student, but no standout. At 16, he began studies at the University of Konigsberg, where he ended up spending his entire career. He studied the philosophy of Leibniz and Wolff, and new mathematical physics of the Englishman Isaac Newton. When his father had a stroke in 1746, Kant began tutoring in the villages around his hometown. He never married, but had a rich social life. He was a popular author and teacher, and that was before publishing his best-known philosophical works. Kant was a firm believer in rationalism until he was awakened from his, as he called it, dogmatic slumber by reading David Hume. In the work for which Kant is best known, his 1781 Critique of Pure Reason, he proposed a radical alternative to both the skepticism of Hume and the rationalism of Descartes. According to Kant, There is no such thing as innate ideas, but there are fundamental structures of the mind, and within those structures we place whatever our senses perceive. Those first and most important structures are time and space. Then follow what Kant called the 12 categories. Unity, plurality, quantity, quality, reality, negation, limitation, subsistence, causality, relation, possibility, and necessity. Now, did you get that? (laughs) Don't worry, there's not going to be a quiz. Kant said that time, space, and the 12 categories aren't something that we perceive with our senses. Rather, they're structures of our minds that we use to organize our perceptions. In order to be able to use or process a sensation, that is, the activity of our five senses, we have to put it into one of these mental structures. It's only after the mind orders them within these categories that they then become intelligible experiences. Kant claimed that no one really knows a thing in itself. What we know is only what's going on in the activity of our minds. It's our perception of a thing that we know, not the thing itself as it is. Now, let me say again, because it's the key to understanding Kant's contribution to modern philosophy, and in that, to a large part of how modern people think, it's our perception of a thing that we know, not the thing itself as it is. An illustration may help, and we'll make this pleasant, too. Let's say that you and I are on the big island of Hawaii. 
We're both looking at a black sand beach at sunset. The sun is a golden orb sinking into a blue ocean. A half dozen palm trees stand in dark silhouette against a multicolored sky of deep blue, fading to indigo and morphing to scarlet and orange. Now, I just gave the names to several colors, but those are just labels that come from the categories in my mind that I sort what my eyes see into, and you do the same. But how could we know if what I experience as orange is the same as what you know as orange? Maybe my orange is your blue. My black might be your white. But since we've always labeled what we perceive by those labels, that's what they are to us. Maybe if what you and I perceive were to be somehow traded, we'd freak because of the messing with our categories it just played. Kant said that with knowledge, what we know isn't things as they are in themselves, but rather what our mind interpret them as. So there's no such thing as purely objective knowledge. And the pure rationality of Cartesians, empiricists, and deists, well, that's an illusion. Now, if true, Kant's work meant that many of the arguments used to support Christian doctrine no longer worked. If existence isn't an objective reality, but just a category of our minds, there's no way to prove the existence of God, or the soul, or anything else. Descartes would be stuck at, I think, therefore I am. He could go no further than that. Kant, like many Enlightenment thinkers, was loath to give up completely on the existence of God. They wanted to hang on to it. But with Kantian philosophy, faith and reason became utterly separated from each other. While many found Hume's determined skepticism hard to accept, Kant's redefinition of knowledge as merely a state of the mind, well, that was far more appealing. Kant dealt with religion in several of his works, particularly his Critique of Practical Reason, published in 1788. There he argued that, although pure reason can't prove the existence of God or the soul, there's practical reason that has to do with the moral life and whose procedure is different from that of pure reason. But this practical reason becomes a concession, a nod to those who can't operate by the higher pure reason. It didn't take long for others to realize that practical reason was like the philosophical training wheels that had to come off if humanity was to move forward as purely rational creatures. Kant's significance to religion and theology goes far beyond his uninspired attempts to ground religion in some kind of practical morality. His philosophical work dealt a death blow to the easy rationalism of his predecessors and to the notion that it's possible to speak in purely rational and objective terms of matters like the existence of God and the soul. Following Kant, theologians tended to accept his divorce of faith and reason, and eventually some questioned the universality and immutability of his categories of the mind, arguing that things like psychology, culture, and even language shape those categories. Kant's work, which in some ways was the high point of modern philosophy, set the stage for the postmodern critique of the insistence on objectivity and universality as signs of true knowledge. And we'll call it quits for this episode for two reasons. First, I'm on vacation and my wife is calling me to watch that sunset with her. And second, my head hurts. I can't deal with Kant's mental gymnastics. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. 
For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.